and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined as always by Miles Danhausen, who seems to be uh, ripping into a delicious candy treat right now. I am. How's it going, Miles? I'm, I'm chewing on a Cliff Bar, Andrew. Perfect. I need some energy to get through these podcasts. Right. We need our more brain power to talk about all the stuff we're going to talk about. Uh, hope you had a good weekend. Hope everybody had a good Mother's Day weekend. We'll jump into it. Before we get into kind of the news and the COVID-19 related stuff, just wanted to talk about something kind of... I don't know, benign that I saw on social media that I thought was interesting. Uh, People are asking about a chunk of Cave Point that may have fallen off like last week into the water. And that's apparently something that happens. And I've never thought about that. That's, you know, it makes sense. Cave Point is hit by high waves constantly. Uh, When storms blow through, there's a ton of wave action there. Erosion is going to cause things to fall into the water. I just never thought about, you know, big chunks falling in. And I know that over the years, some bigger boulders have fallen into the water and become kind of permanent fixtures. You might not be able to see all of them right now because of the high water. But Miles, is is Cave Point's slow crumbling anything that you've covered in your time as a journalist or, or anything that you've even thought about that much? Yeah, they say Cave Point will be gone within a couple of months. No, just kidding. Right. Um, <laughs> That's what I had heard the, the latest on. Uh, no, I haven't covered it, but like it just makes sense. Um, I, earlier this year, uh, Champagne Rock fell into the water, which not a lot of people probably know about, but it's a spot in Fish Creek that people have always loved hanging out on and getting pictures taken there. But it reminded me when you brought this up today of Arches National Park, where I went out there like 13 years ago. And a couple years later, like a major one of the arches just crumbled in. And, you know, when these things stand the test of hundreds of if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, you're just like, oh yeah, it's always going to be there. And then it's just kind of wild when something like that does happen. You go, oh, it might take decades before another chunk of Cave Point falls in. It might be a couple of years. Who knows? Right. And it's just wild to think about like Cave Point is such an icon of Door County. It's, you know, one of the most photographed places in Door County, I would wager. Just to think about like at, at some point in the future, Cave Point might not exist. Like it just, there might not be that outcropping anymore because all of it is just eroded away. Um, I, I doubt either of us will live to see that day, but it's just some food for thought. And, and I wonder if, like, if you go back. 50, 60, 70 years and compare photographs of the area uh, to what it looks like now, if you can see some of that change. Because I would imagine that while erosion takes, like you said, decades and centuries and sometimes, you know, thousands of years to really have an impact, I'm sure that people aren't helping that much by, you know, walking all over Cave Point, jumping off of it, that kind of stuff. I'm sure that that has some impact just on the structural integrity of the rock over time. Well, we need to get a geologist in here. (laughs) Let's shelf this discussion for now. I'm going to hunt down a geologist and I, I just want to talk more and more about rocks falling into the water because that's my that's my quarantine obsession right now. It's the way that I've gotten my mind off of it. Well, we, we all need something to, to hone in on. Um, right. But even like beaches and stuff, like how much, if you look at it, depending on the era, and obviously this goes with the high water and low water and stuff, but like Whitefish Dunes 12 years ago was this vast expanse of sand beach that was just beautiful to hang out on and, and maybe the most beautiful beach in Door County. Now it basically doesn't exist. <laughs> so, right. uh, and a lot of that shoreline on the the eastern edge of the county, in various old pictures from the at various points in say like the fifties or sixties, you'd see these expansive beaches that look almost like beaches on the Atlantic coast that now are just gone. So it right. is it is pretty fascinating to com- compare and contrast like photos today from back then, even like the state parks or some of these hills on the highway as you enter towns. And if you look every basically every time they redo the highway, they 
drastically change a lot of those those hill entry points from to to either usually it's like they're trying to reduce the slope so you'll see and sometimes you'll look at the photo and you it just does not look at all like like the that view viewpoint today like when you enter sister bay or when you enter um fish creek part of that being that we at one point clear cut all the trees too so it looks a lot different Right. Well, and, and the beaches, that's something that you can see pretty quickly because when, when was it that the water levels were really low? Like 2008 in that the, zone? The absolute bottoming out, I think it was like 2013. I think it was like a record low. But then, yeah, every basically from 2006, 2007, they really started to, um, they were low from like 2006 to about 2013. Right. So in less than 20 years, look at how many feet of shoreline we've lost in Door County just mm-hmm. from the water levels raising. Yeah, it's pretty right. wild. Let's move on. Uh, we've got some COVID-19 related stuff to talk about today. Uh, first off, I just saw on Facebook that Culver's in Sturgeon Bay uh, announced that they had a confirmed case uh, among their team and have decided to close until further notice. So uh, if if you want to know when they're going to open up again, I would say follow their Facebook page. Um, I saw it posted on a Door County group and uh, no information on, on when their reopening has been posted yet. Yeah, I would imagine that's just due to if you have one member of your team that tests positive and imagine they've asked a lot of that team to quarantine. Um, and so uh, I'm getting this is all just speculation on my part, but that that would be my hunch about how that happens. And then, all right, right. how do you open? That's yeah, and that's going to be an interesting one for businesses all summer long. Like if because that that's just going to happen. There's no I have nothing to say that no indication that that's any fault of Culver's whatsoever. But um, that could happen at so many different businesses. And then what do you do once it does? Right. Like you open and then most staffs up here are so small that it's that business can't operate. I talked to a, a small business owner this weekend who said they're not going to open for guests at least in July because they they said, I'm a one, one person shop with maybe a, another part-time employee. If I get sick, my business closes. So I can't really have people coming into my shop. I have to do takeout only. And that there's a lot more of that than I think maybe legislators or people in general have acknowledged like this, it's not going to be just as easy as opening just because people say you can. Right. And and that's the thing. I think that Culver's is making the right call here in closing and probably making their staff quarantine. I Again, they haven't posted anything to that extent on my, from what I've seen, but you're, you're totally right. If one of your staff member gets sick, the, the right thing to do is to quarantine everybody else, because who knows if that was passed on to anyone else. If you don't quarantine and you just have that person stay home, maybe they've already passed it to another person who's going to pass it to another member of your team. And now instead of having one person get sick, shutting down your business for two weeks and then reopening, you're going to have this like week of incubation time where your entire staff is going to get sick. And now you're looking at what, three, four, five weeks of downtime because you can't staff your restaurant or business. Probably as soon as you get that that first case, the probably the smartest thing to do is to shut it down for two weeks. Make sure that you can reopen safely. Um, and, two and weeks f- is a long time in the short tourism season that we have, but it's one of those things where it's like, do I take the two week cut now or risk having my entire summer wiped away? In the case of uh, something like this, I, I don't even think it'd be up to the business as much as it would be public health because they've probably you know if, if somebody got sick, I'll use the pulse as an example. If somebody got sick of the Pulse tested positive, public health would do contact tracing and then go to each person that they came in contact with. It doesn't necessarily mean it's everyone in the in the office or everyone at Culver's. It's everyone that you might have worked with and then determine 
okay, you should self-quarantine. So then they're going to tell that employee that that's what they need to do. Um, and then if, if, if half of our staff at the Pulse had to self-quarantine, like we obviously couldn't have the office open. We're lucky. Like we can still operate our business if everyone's quarantining. Um, right. But that's, that's the, the thing that's going to happen. It's not, like I said, it's just not up to the, the business as much as it is to public health. Sure. And those individual uh, employees. Right. Speaking of businesses, more businesses uh, open this weekend and more businesses are allowed to open now. Uh, you were reading on Twitter some new guidelines for um, some retail experiences that are that have some regulations for how they can open, correct? Uh, Governor Tony Evers uh, just announced about half an hour ago as we're recording this on Monday afternoon um, that business retail establishments that are either standalone or strip mall based will be allowed to open for five customers or fewer. So that's a huge step. And it's one that I'm kind of surprised they didn't take even a little bit earlier, just because I've said this before, I think like small retail establishments can control with the right guidance can control things pretty easily. I think a lot of businesses were happy to finally see some guidance come out last week and some instructions on what to do. But yeah, that's the one nice step is to see if we can do retail first and then learn what we can learn from retail for probably what would be a little bit more dangerous situation in in restaurants and bars and clubs, things like that. Right. Uh, one thing that you didn't mention that I'm also seeing as part of this announcement for retail is that drive-in theaters are also uh, able to open as well. So that will have implications for the Skyway drive-in, I would imagine, this summer in terms yeah, of... Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I I don't know if they would have already been open at this point or not. I know that they open up in May for the first show, but hopefully that means that they'll be able to uh, open things up shortly here if that's what they're looking to do. Yeah, and as you mentioned, other businesses... You've also seen reports of businesses that have opened, not necessarily in Door County, although I know business owners are thinking this way. Businesses around the country have opened only to see customers not adhere to the business guidelines. I read a story about one one place that had tables set up across the front door where they were taking they were doing takeout only, and those tables were set up a to, to block the front door so nobody would come into the restaurant, but also for them to come out and set orders on that table for people to come and pick up. And people tried to like climb around the tables and were were shouting at the restaurant owners that they weren't being allowed in and why weren't they allowing them in? And as a as a restaurant, some people are saying, you know, this isn't worth it. It's just not worth it. Like for for a smaller percentage of income to deal with this level of harassment from customers is just as they're just trying to keep their employees and and staff safe and the public safe, just deciding it's it's they're going to close anyway. So it'll right. be interesting to see if any. I know I know some restaurant owners are thinking a little bit along those lines in Door County. It'd be interesting to see if anyone any of them decide to close. Yeah, well, and that's a big thing to take into consideration, especially in a place like Door County, where a lot of times when you go into a business, the person that you are interacting with behind the counter is the business owner, right? So if a a business decides to open, and I'm sure most businesses want to open, uh, they are going to be taking their safety into consideration. And if if they feel like they or their employees uh, are are not safe uh, due to the way that customers are behaving, then uh, I feel like you are going to see that like stepping back and changing things up, maybe going back to curbside delivery uh, and not letting people in just as we see more people coming up and we see restrictions starting to lift. Um, I, I think that you'll see that on a business to business basis, especially this summer, just depending on how people actually go about handling the regulations. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, 
It's going to be a summer long up and down ride. Right. Speaking of an up and down ride, as we are recording this, we still do not have word on the lawsuit that is looking to end the Safe Red Home order in Wisconsin. But there is something I think to talk about just in terms of what is it going to mean if, you know, we find out today that the Safe Red Home order is lifted. We've got some regulations and some guidelines in place right now, uh, but I don't think that we have all of them. And I don't know if we're all ready to just say, okay, we're, we're, we're back to business as usual tomorrow, right? If the lawsuit happens to pass the, today. Yeah, I think the reality is most business owners and most customers just aren't ready to go back to normal. I mean, even if you're being generous, I think like 70, at least 70% of people are would expect to see some constraints in place, maybe even more than that. So whatever happens today, there's still, it's not like people are going to open wide. Although there will be, I'm, I'm sure you will see certain businesses, if if they took the gloves completely off tomorrow, that would just go back to normal. And then I, I'm pretty sure we would see a spike in cases directly tied to those places. But yeah, that's the danger with this with this lawsuit is not really having a plan in place for if it if it succeeds and if you end that order. So right. Well, and the you, you said that you might see a spike in cases connected to those businesses, but we won't necessarily know, right? So if if there's a case at a business uh, like Culver's, Culver's reported that case to the public, uh, but I don't believe they have to. Correct? No, they don't. Um, that and, and, and public health would not have told us that either. Right. So if a business closes or if somebody gets COVID-19 at a business uh, and they don't self-report it, we'll have no way of knowing which business. And, and that's a good thing, right? Like it, you don't want to, if, if somebody has a case at a business, you don't want to immediately like blacklist that entire business for the whole summer because you think that it might be dirty, right? Um, so it, it is a good thing that those met metrics aren't reported on. But at the same time, if the safer at home order lifts tomorrow and in two weeks we see a huge spike in cases, I think it's a pretty easy correlation to make. Right. Yep. Miles, is there anything else COVID related or otherwise that we should talk about today before we jump into your interview with Deborah Fitzgerald? Uh, no, um, it's just uh, great to welcome Deborah Fitzgerald to the staff. Uh, I talked to her a little bit about her background and what it's been like to return to Door County in the midst of a pandemic and um, how, it, how it is when you in our job as a reporter where it's, it's so much about people and meeting people and talking to people and seeing them in person and visiting places. And then to come back and try to reintroduce yourself to a town and a community when you can't do any of those things. <laughs> right. Well, we will jump into that interview shortly here. If while I'm editing, uh, we do get a response on the lawsuit or if the numbers are released and I'm able to add them into the podcast, I will do so right here. But otherwise, thank you, Miles, for chatting with me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you, Andrew. Good talking. All right, very excited to introduce our listeners today to Deb Fitzgerald, who will be our guest on the podcast and has joined us as our new editor at the Peninsula Pulse. Deb, thanks for hopping on the podcast and welcome to Door County. Thanks, Miles. Welcome back to Door County, I should say. Thanks, Miles. <laughs> it's good to be back. Why don't you fill our listeners in on a little of your backstory, working both for the Door County Advocate back in, in Door County and when that time frame was and what you've been up to in the time since. Okay. Um... I think I began working for the Door County Advocate shortly after I arrived, and that was in 2000 or 2001, and worked at the Advocate for um, the next eight years, and 
decided to uh, leave The Advocate um, when things were becoming eh, not like they used to be under the former ownership. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll just put it that way. And so we left for Arizona where I was going to uh, be working on my graduate school novel. And uh, that didn't quite work out. So I decided to take a look back up north again for newspaper positions because that really is my my first love and it's my career. And so I started looking and uh, got a job with a newspaper in southwest Minnesota in Pipestone County, Minnesota, and was the editor there for the past 11 years. What drew you back to Door County and compare that maybe to Pipestone. Like what kind of community was that like as well? Uh, what drew me to Door County initially is like many people, I had, I think the first time I came to Door County, I was 22 and I absolutely fell in love with the place and decided that that's where I wanted to live. I grew up in Massachusetts, um, uh, about north of Boston, about 30 miles, and it reminded me so much of Massachusetts, and I really didn't want to return to the East Coast. So it was, to me, uh, the perfect place for me to be. And so I eventually made it happen uh, not too much later to move up here and live. Now, Pipestone County, by comparison, is a rural area. It is on the corn and soybean agricultural belts in the Midwest. So it is considered big ag out there with large uh, concentrated animal feedlot operations, primarily hogs. And so it was really quite a different perspective for me and one that, one that I welcomed because it really took me out of, you know, my comfort areas and you know, the echo chambers that we all kind of live in. And so it, it offered me some great perspectives. There are good, good, great people there. But I wanted to uh, I wanted to return here. I never thought that it would be the end for me. Talk a little bit more about like that, that echo chamber and what you learned in Pipestone and, <clears throat> and, and kind of some of that, like taking yourself out of your comfort zone. Right. Well, I thought that because I had lived in Door County um, and I moved to Door County from Chicago, that's where I did my undergraduate work. And so I moved to Door County from Chicago. And so I thought when I moved to Door County that it was a rural place. So when I moved to Pipestone County for a truly rural place, I was absolutely not uh, really prepared for that. This is, you hear the slogan, um, you know, farmers are feeding the world. And I lived among the people who believed that with every fiber of their being. They were the people who were feeding the world. Yes, it was actually something that they did for a living. But as long as people in the cities still want to eat meat, still want to eat pork or beef or chicken, then they need people to be able to grow those things for them. And those people need to be able to make a living. That's not what I would have said before I moved there. So I really got to understand our agricultural system. And while I don't agree with a lot of it, I now come from a perspective of knowing it hmm. and having intelligent, being able to make intelligent uh, decisions about it and choices and statements. 
so that experience for me was just really invaluable. And so when things happen for farmers, one thing that I learned as well is that farming is not a profession. It is a lifestyle. So you are the person who is actually taking over the family farm that has been in your family for generations. If you can no longer sustain that livelihood, then you are the person who has ended that family heritage. Mm -hmm. You are the person who has not been able to carry on and your whole lifestyle is gone. So it's just, it was just an invaluable experience for me to, to see all of that. And you contrast that with, you said when you came to Door County, you thought this was a rural community and then you went out there and you saw a true rural community. What, what is that difference there in what you, you thought Door County might've been and, and what you really yeah. experienced there? Right. Well, Door County is unique in that it is, it's, it's, it's a beautiful area and it's not as populated as cities, but it, it has a high population of transients. In Pipestone County, I think I was maybe one of the only people that I knew that had moved into the area from outside of the area. Hmm. In Dora in County, anybody that you talk with, you find out that, you know, they probably didn't grow up here. There are, like you, Miles, there are still a lot of people who have. But I, and I don't know what the percentage is of transient population here, but I would suspect that it's pretty high. Mm-hmm. So when you bring when you bring that kind of diversity in, then it changes the way that people think about things, or at least it pro- provides you with different perspectives. And the other thing is, is that this is vacation land for a long a lot of people, and so a lot of the businesses cater to people who come in from outside. That means that you'll be able to find, you know, your uh, maca powder, maca root powder, which, you know, I put in smoothies and I always had to order online because <laughs> you can't get that stuff in, in truly rural America. So you can find all of the big city amenities here simply because they cater to people who come in from the outside. So this is not rural in that way, not to mention that agriculture is no longer a significant part of this economy. I don't know what the percentage is, but I would suspect that it's pretty low at this point in time. And dropping. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And you talk yeah. about those farmers being the last in the family line. And we've seen a lot of that in the last few years here of names just synonymous with farming that have had to sell the farm. And right. um, just as some of the dairy farming gets consolidated into these larger groups and the prices are down. And um, as you get strung down to like the the fourth and fifth generation. And now there's like four or five families trying to feed off the farm instead of one. And it becomes really hard to keep it alive here. um, Right. Without those economies of scale. That is interesting too. When you, when you talk about like real small town, like when I moved back here from Chicago, we were like, okay, so we're not going to have all these things available at the grocery store that we used to have in, in our corner store in Chicago. And, Uh and there is that, but like you mentioned, like we still have a lot more than a true, rural, isolated community might have available. Right. And you don't realize that until you go to a true rural one. (laughs) It's really amazing. (laughs) I mean, not even any, you know, no no yoga. And I actually got my yoga certification while I lived in Pipestone County because there was no one to take yoga classes from. And I had been, I had been practicing since 2000, actually, when uh, 
up here. I had been practicing since 2000. And so I started just teaching a basic class and I decided, well, I like this and I want to bring yoga here. So I went and got my certification. And so I've been teaching yoga for the past seven years. And I never would have done that if there had been yoga available in this area. (laughs) When I moved back, those like six to eight years in between, so much evolved here. So much, like there are so many more like yoga studios with regular classes opened up, um, small gyms, restaurant culture changed so much in that time. It's going to be really interesting once you get settled in and eventually, hopefully things open up again and you can go to these places to see what it looks like to you with a, even a little greater span between. But right now mm-hmm. you're coming back in the middle of a, a crisis, nothing like we've ever seen before. Um, mm-hmm. What has it been like to come back to Door County, settle into this new job? And for our listeners out there, you've been here about two weeks um, and and hop into the middle of this when uh, right. when you know a Door County that's so different than this shut down one that you're you're coming back to. Right. So it is it's strange to have returned here and to, you know, obviously see everything, everything closed and nobody on the sidewalks and it's, you know, and it's obviously it's sad and it's heartbreaking, but it is what's happening everywhere. And so that part of it was not unique because it was like that in Minnesota. But up here in Door County, my situation is a little bit unique because I'm starting a new position and, you know, looking for a home and trying to make all of those adjustments. And in a way, the incubation period is allowing me to do that with a little bit less distraction than you normally would have hmm. coming into a new place. So in a way, that part has been beneficial because I have been able to, you know, focus on the primary tasks at hand. Uh, COVID coverage is the same even in a small rural county as it is, you know, anywhere. I mean, we're all facing the same issues. The scale may be different, but the issues are still the same, large or small city. So that part, you know, has fortunately, I was living under it for a while, as we all have been. Pretty soon, the new normal becomes normal over a period of time. And so it's not as as strange or foreign. And then, of course, in Dora County, the beauty of the land is still here. And you can still experience that. You know, that's something that I'm thankful for. Um, You you touched a little on this. Like you and I have talked about this in the office, too, is there's this, I think, misconception out there that media loves this crisis. (laughs) Like, And you and I, especially as people who love local journalism, the crisis needs to be covered. You need to get this information out. But at the same time, we're both sitting here going, how do we get back to something other than COVID? How do we write a different story that people still care about right now? (laughs) And and do the things that we love about small town local journalism mm-hmm. and providing for the community. It's just a, uh, but yet there's a lot of people who think this is a great moment for us. Obviously, just look at the advertising. It's not a great moment. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, right. Um, I mean, this is not, yes, this is not great. I mean, covering this, and especially I remember this after the first two weeks when it was all COVID all the time and it was so brand new that you're constantly tracking the statistics and where is it now and and I was, I was really struggling with that. I was never, it was never out of my head. 
I was mm-hmm. constantly reading about it, constantly talking to officials about it, constantly reporting on it. And when that first happened, it was it was very difficult to separate yourself from, you know, this pandemic that had just begun and the significance of it and not take that in internally. That was that was a really hard period. Now it's, you know, now we're more acclimated, obviously, because as professionals in journalism, you have to separate or learn to separate yourself from these issues that you're covering all the time because they can get to you. And this one just never goes away. So this one, we have to try and compartmentalize. And yet there are no other compartments right now. No. So, (laughs) you know, there's there's no high school baseball game to go and distract yourself from it. There's no event. (laughs) There's no, you can't go to the bar and, and just talk to people about something else or the coffee shop. Like you just, every conversation you have is a specific conversation right now. For me, that's one of the, the more difficult parts is I, I love like wandering around just listening to people and overhearing people and seeing what, what, what are, what is actually affecting someone's day to day versus like sitting in our, our hole as journalists and just talking to officials. Like I love getting that outside perspective. And right now it's really hard to do that unless I make a list of people to call to get a different perspective, but then I'm still like calling specific people, you know? Um, there's no serendipity at the moment. (laughs) And only talking on the telephone. And when I was, when you're talking with people in person at safe distances, they have masks on. And so you can't even see their facial expressions. So all you see is their eyes. And so the interaction feels almost artificial. Mm-hmm. Even though the human being is there, you can't see those. Fe- I mean, so it is, it is very difficult to, uh, to feel like you are connecting with people during this. And, you know, frankly... Connecting people with issues and with other people, that's what we do. That's what, you know, community journalists do. We connect people. I mean, whether it's readers and advertisers or, you know, people with artists and government officials. I mean, that is a really big part of our mission. And right now, that connection is being done, you know, in very strange and artificial ways. And even before this, obviously, there were there were ways that sort of journalism has changed. You got to be faster. You got to produce more than ever before. Mm-hmm. But when you're lucky, you get some time to really work on a story. And what you talked about with the facial ex- expressions, like there's a big difference between interviewing someone in person or going into their home and seeing how they actually lived and, and seeing what, mm-hmm. what they value is important enough to put up on the wall. Um, mm-hmm. Those, what they're what furniture they choose, all those things help you tell a much better story in a fuller picture or seeing what right. someone has in their office. And you can't do that right now. And, right. and like right now, I find myself just like dying to do that kind of story again. And um, yes. now the equivalent of that is calling someone and just hearing the exasperation in their voice or the you can hear the frustration sometimes, but yes. it doesn't come across the same on a phone call as it does in person. And that's, you know, all, these are journalist problems, right? These are so much smaller than other problems, but like I, it, it, it's real and it's everybody's job is affected. There's nothing. Usually when we're covering an issue, you go in, you get the information, you go back and you tell this story about something else. But now you're telling the story about something else while living it in our own business, in our own offices, in our own homes. It's a, it's so different than almost anything else. Right. It's almost like war zone reporting if you were ever in a war zone. I mean, that's the only way that I can liken it to 
that you never actually are out of it. I mean, we are, we are, you know, now anybody who works in the media is an embedded reporter because it's, we're living it too. And, you know, having to set that aside, you know, and be able to report not only with accuracy and fairness, but with compassion and with intelligence. That's really important for something like this. I mean, it's always important, but... It's, you have to take like extra levels of thought and self-awareness to take yourself like, all right, am I, is, is my frustration with the day or, you know, in, in some journalist's case, maybe it's depression, um, frustration, their own personal um, anxieties. Am I taking that out of the story and just writing the story like, I'm, mm-hmm. like I would normally do? All those things come right. into it. Um, I talk to a bunch of restaurant owners after every weekend, I, I text and, and call and or talk to them as I pick up food. And it is the anxiety level that's there for, for people trying to reopen their business or just try to run their business and do it in a safe way right now. And then the uncertainty mm-hmm. of knowing like, if, is all this work I'm doing to create a takeout restaurant right now, is it all a moot point in two weeks? Like, are we back to dine in of some level? And now I just got to go back to, like after I figure out all this takeout stuff, now I have to figure out how to rearrange my dining room. So I got to restart and create a new business again um, right. and in the midst of all this, they're trying to figure out, all right, what loan do I apply for? What, how do mm-hmm. I do my financing? Right. Maybe I can catch some spare time and think about like a four month plan or whether mm-hmm. my business survives. And there's just so much being piled onto people. I guess the one benefit is that it's everybody, right? <laughs> well, yes, it is. I mean, and it is everybody, but everybody in a particular and specific way, and yet, because everyone acknowledges that everybody's in it, then it's not really as bad as it could be. You know, there's not a lot of victimhood here. You know, sometimes, you know, people enjoy playing victims in certain crises, and there is none of that here. People know intrinsically that everybody's experiencing it at some level. And that allows us to actually come together And I know that that's a phrase that, you know, is really probably overused now. But, I mean, it really does set us all at the same starting block. You know, we are all, you know, there at the beginning. And even though our experiences are different specifically, they're pretty much collectively the same. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It was interesting watching you last week come back and you're trying to get reacquainted. And some of the people that were here when you were last in Door County as a reporter are still here, but a lot of those faces and names have changed. And there is the, one of the benefits actually as a reporter is they have all these zoom town hall meetings and zoom meetings for common council and stuff. And you hopped on one last week and probably, um, I think Dave asked you, you know, are you really going to get anything new out of this at this point? And you said, well, maybe, but, um, better, more accurately, I'm just trying to put names to faces and I can, I can get a lot of names and faces out of one zoom meeting. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that that was pretty interesting just to see like, oh, yeah, I guess you're you're going to find out who probably 40 people are <laughs> doing this. Right. I mean, that's a, that, that's one cool thing um, for this is that it, people are now really, really, really acquainted with Zoom. And uh, so we were able to we're able to access a lot more people at one time. And normally it's you physically go to a government meeting or physically go to you know, a press conference, and there are X number of people there. Well, these Zoom meetings have the opportunity to to pull in so many different people. I think there were probably like 
246 on that first partnership Zoom meeting between Door County Medical Center and uh, Public Health, Door County Public Health. So that is that's kind of one of the cool things that has arisen from this. Um, you know, stepping out of the journalism talk, you mentioned you were looking for a house. So anybody who's got a house out there might be interested, yes, drop yes. us a line. <laughs> 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 please, please. No, we do have an offering on one house. I don't know how that's going to turn out, but the market is definitely, you know, very slow right now. There's not a lot of stock. So we're we're not having an easy time of it. And we've already sold our other house. So there is going to be a D-Day here coming up soon. Well, I, I was shocked that you were able to sell your other house that quickly. Well, you know, I had scouts up here. <laughs> looking and sending me things. And uh, so one person, one of my friends sent me this one even before I arrived. So I had a, a, you know, a good feel for it before then. So, so I've been looking pretty diligently for weeks prior to coming. And yeah. And your house back in Minnesota, was that just lucky that was that was was that just lucky that somebody happened to be looking for something like what you had back in Minnesota to no, actually, well, no, not really, because we live in a big ag country, then most of the farm sites are are, are are massive agricultural operations. So you don't have a lot of space left for the small hobby farms, which is basically what we had. We grew all of our own vegetables, had a root cellar, we did um, chickens and eggs. And, and so it was a smaller site, and it was a hobby farm. So we had a ton of interest almost immediately. And that was interesting because I didn't want to let people into the house, even though we had listed it. I thought, well, how are we possibly going to sell this if we can't allow people in the house? And yet I turned down the first couple of showings, which were immediate because I needed to get my head around that. I needed to figure out how to safely uh, and make sure that the realtors were safely allowing people. So that meant no children and you know, uh, masks and gloves and sanitizing all doorknobs afterwards. And so we had this whole ritual every time somebody came. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, so, another thing that you just don't think of that much is is the whole real estate market in the, in, in this uh, pandemic is, you know, right. you worry about restaurants, you worry about offices, you worry about meatpacking plants. And then you're like, oh, yeah, real estate. You're, you're bringing strangers into your home and probably still trying to live there. Um, lots of different yeah. aspects. Um, so the housing hunt. Has uh, have you had as much fun doing that in Door County as everybody else has? <laughs> like oh, for the housing cost? <laughs> no, just the housing yeah. hunt of like oh, just yes. trying it's to jump terrible. into this market is is crazy. I know, and and I'm I'm being told that it's not it's not as bad this bad normally in that uh, the realtors believe that it's going to open up a lot more, but right now there's just really there's almost nothing on the market, and when something comes up. Like last Saturday night, something came up. I got a notification. The next day, after I called my realtor, there were already 10 showings booked for that one house. Wow. Yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah, it's not fun. There may be, I'm just thinking about this as we're talking here. I, I did see that Airbnb uh, corporate had laid off 25% of their staff um, because they are anticipating just much less inclination for wide ranging travel in the year or two ahead and more yeah. 
safer, close to home drive to destinations, all of which might play out very well for Door County, honestly. But Uh I do wonder if the market in Door County might be better for the average person in the in the months and year ahead because the Airbnb speculators may drop out of the market right now to some Uh like because there has been a lot of like low hanging fruit, like some of the cheaper housing stock up here has been bought up by people buying it so they can rent it on Airbnb where they can cover a, a, oh, a small mortgage okay. pretty easily by just renting it a couple times a month. I wonder if that'll affect the market. Are, are the real estate agents telling you that that there's less stock because people just want to pull it off the market? They don't want to be on the market during this pandemic. Is that kind of what you're hearing? Well, that's, that's what I'm hearing from my realtor. And okay. I imagine that her experience is, is probably what others are experiencing as well. But yes, that's that's exactly what they're saying is that people just don't want to put anything in the market right now because of the conditions, the overriding conditions. Hmm. Um, well, hopefully your your offer gets accepted. Are you looking for a hobby farm here as well? Are you you're looking to get well, back into it? Some, yes. Well, we are definitely going to be downsizing our hobby farm operation, but we still need at least an acre because we still will always grow our own food and uh, we need, you know, about an acre for that. So. Well, good luck. My parents have Thank two acres. You. They have they have a garden. We used to have goats. So we had a pretty good hobby farm as kids. Um, oh, cool. By by necessity. Um, but <laughs> Deb, it's great to have your first appearance on the podcast and to have you back in Door County and and working at the Pulse and uh, looking forward to having you jump on the pod a lot in the years ahead. Oh, good. I really look forward to that too. But it's it's so great to be here. And thanks for inviting me on this. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.